John chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John records the dramatic lead up, if you like, to the final Passover meal that Jesus will share with his disciples, what has since then come to be known as the Last Supper. And in the early verses of this chapter, we read of a a powerful and uh, very sincere circumstance where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anoints the feet of Jesus with precious ointment and wipes his feet with her hair. And not long after that, we read that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey, which is now also, it's interesting, we we have titles for these things that they didn't call them then at the time, but usually referred to now as the triumphal entry. And as he rode into Jerusalem, the people took palm branches and they, they laid them on the streets as a, a sign of honor, and they even would take their own garments, their coats. They also laid them on the walkways as he would, would ride across them. It was, it was a sign of honoring who he was, and the Bible lets us know there's different exact phraseology, but in different gospels, but they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then shortly after that, Jesus begins to speak about his death, which was before him in the coming days. He spoke of a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying and how that death would become the avenue by which much fruit would come forth. And as the thought of his death and the terrible suffering he would go through filled his mind because we need to remember that he was God manifest in the flesh. There was complete, genuine humanity, but there was also divinity. And so there was knowledge that he would have had of what was happening and the will of God that was beyond just his natural understanding. He spoke about his impending death. So he knew some of what was ahead of him, if not all of it. And as the thoughts of that and the terrible suffering began to fill his mind, we are given a glimpse of his genuine humanity in John chapter 12, verse 27, when the Lord said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Jesus knew that what he was about to endure was going to be horrific. And when he later on in the short future prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in a similar tone, he says, Father, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Help me to find another way if there's another way. But he said, if, if there's no other way, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew that there was no other way. Humanity was saturated with sin beyond redemption by any natural means or actions. The law of God, the justice of God, the the aspect of God's character that much of the modern world would rather overlook, demanded that a price must be paid, that an acceptable sacrifice must be offered. And the Lord knew that even if a search was made through every generation, every century, every millennia, every tribe, every nation, that no such acceptable sacrifice existed. There was not one single person that did not carry the stain and the stink of sin. And so this was the cause that Jesus was born for. This was the reason that he came. And although in the context of John 12, Jesus is talking about the cross 
as being the reason he came because of who he was, he was actually also looking beyond the cross, beyond the grave, beyond even the resurrection. Because Hebrews 12 and 2 tells us that we should look unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was no joy in Calvary. Golgotha's hill was possibly the darkest day in human history because the only sinless man was judged by his creation and crucified on an old rugged cross, but he was able to see beyond that weekend. He was able to see beyond that Passover, that day and a half in the grave and that resurrection morning and see joy that was ahead of him in his future. He was able to see something that nobody else could see. He came to die for us, but he did so knowing that it would open a door that was very much locked, that it would make a way where there was definitely no way. He knew that salvation was only possible through his death. And although Calvary was looming large before him, this terrible appointment that he had, he was able to look beyond that very, very dark day and see an upper room in Jerusalem where for the first time 120 souls would be filled with his spirit, speaking in other tongues. The scripture calls it the spirit of Christ. He was able to see beyond the cross. He was able to see that there would be 120 people that obeyed his instruction to tarry in Jerusalem to wait for a promise that they didn't really even understand at this point. And it took them quite a while to understand even after it happened. But he was able to see that on the day of Pentecost, that there would be suddenly a sound that would come from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and all that house would be filled and there would appear under them cloven tongues as the fire and they would all begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God enabled them. That's what he was seeing. That was why he was able to persevere. That was why Peter was able to stand up in Acts chapter 2 and say that it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The cross was the price, but the cause or the purpose for the price was that he was thinking about us being filled with his spirit and he considered that worth dying for. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was never where it was meant to end. And sometimes we have the timeline out of adjustment because the whole church world tends to focus on Calvary and it's important, don't let me diminish it, but the purpose of that was Pentecost. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not the end of it, but rather it was the vehicle, it was the avenue that Pentecost might happen. Amen. We should never ever undervalue the cross. Don't misunderstand me today. There's a reason that Jesus told us to take the time to remember it in communion. But the motive for the cross was the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. The cause was a lost and a dying world. And we need to understand if we really want to see the Bible the way that God wants us to see the Bible. The purpose of the cross was Pentecost. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
The purpose of Calvary was that you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. Pentecost is not an afterthought with the cross. Pentecost is the reason there was the cross. This is his cause. This is what he paid for with his life. This is why he shed his blood. Was that we might be born again of water and spirit. This is why there is too much debate about what it means to be born again because the devil wants us to take our eyes off being born again. He's happy for us to stop at Calvary. And Lord, we need to stop at Calvary. We need to find ourselves at the foot of an old rugged cross and say, thank you for dying for me. But we can't stop at the cross. We've got to go on, be buried with him in baptism. Be risen with him by the renewing and regeneration of his spirit. That's his cause. Without the cross, there is no upper room. There's no 3,000 added in Acts chapter 2. No 5,000 added in Acts chapter 4. Without the cross, there's no revival in Samaria. There's no Philip baptizing an Ethiopian eunuch. There's no Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. There's no earthquake in a Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16. There's no disciples at Ephesus in chapter 19. None of that happens without the cross. The cross was about Pentecost. We need to understand what that really means. Without the cross, there's no Azusa Street revival. A little over a hundred years ago. Without Calvary, there's no apostolic missionaries to Australia. Without Calvary, there's no Northside Pentecostal church. The gospel message is not simply that Jesus died, was buried and rose again. It's why he did it that is the gospel message. He died, he was buried and he rose again that we might be born again. That's the gospel message. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we just lift our hands and thank him for that this morning. Hallelujah. 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 I know it messes with a lot of orthodox theology, but the cross without Pentecost is incomplete. The saving blood of the old rugged cross is not effective until we repent, we're baptized in Jesus' name, and we're filled with the Holy Ghost. Its power is there. It's available. It's ready. But I think it says in 1 John, it's not in my slides, but it says that when we keep his word, then his love is perfected in us. That means it's completed. It does its purpose. It's not enough to say, I'm thankful for Calvary. That's a wonderful place to start. But you must be born again. Hallelujah. I'm going to go on a little different tangent for a moment. 2021, last year, we cast a vision for the future of our church. And for the first time in... In our time here, at least, that vision included the starting of a building fund, starting of working towards a new church home. I said this to our leaders just recently, and I want to be very clear, a building is nothing more than an object. It's a material thing. It's a tool that serves the purpose of the church. It serves the vision of the church. But the church is made up of people, and people is why the church exists. And our vision is to impact people with the Word of God, 
to reach them with the whole gospel message, to teach them the word of God. And the church, that building project is a tool for that purpose, for that vision. It's not our identity, it's nothing more than a purpose, but its purpose is to be a place where people can hear the gospel message, where they can be born again of the water and the spirit. His cause must be our cause. His cause must be our cause. Everything that we do, everything we we focus on must come back to, you must be born again. He wants this to our church to always be a place where people can be saved. But once they're saved, it needs to also be a place where people can grow in the Word of God, where their lives can continue to be changed, transformed, developed in the Word of God and growing stronger and closer to the Lord. This is a concept that is all through the New Testament. It talks about being born again. It talks about being infants, but it talks about maturing. It talks about growing in grace and our understanding of the Word of God. It needs to be a place where that growth enables people to reach other people, to minister to other people in whatever way that God has called them to. And we believe that we should be willing to invest in the kingdom of God, but we also believe we should be willing to be invested into the kingdom of God, that we should be willing to go to do whatever He would have us to do. Amen. And I want to, as sincerely as I can this morning, commend you for catching that vision. I want to thank you for your giving toward that project. Since we launched this vision around about 12 months ago, our building fund has almost doubled. And I want to thank you for giving for the kingdom of God. We've got a way to go, folks, but God is in it. Amen. And we want to continue to keep our eyes on the vision that he's given us. We know that God is going to make a way. In fact, without it, it's not going to happen. We know that the Lord will do his part, but we also have to do our part. And so at the beginning of last year, as we shared this vision with the church, our theme for 2021 that we've seen on the wall every week was go. It's a photographic collage, I guess might be the right word. It's probably a more modern word, but I'm old, so that's what we would have called it years ago. Of people in the church involved in various forms of serving God. We spoke about the challenge of not remaining in the same location. I won't talk about moving churches necessarily, but it's talking about where we were in our relationship with God, that if we have been given new life in Christ, a living thing must move, it must grow, it must go. It cannot remain the same. Scripture speaks to us in so many ways of walking, of running a race, of fighting a fight, of pressing towards, of reaching forth, of growing in grace, of growing up and maturing. There's no just digging a hole and sitting in it in the Word of God. It talks to us about movement. And we should and can all testify of how when we look over our shoulder, we can see the faithfulness of God, of how He has brought us from where we used to be to where we are now. We look back and, you know, it's not often measured in giant things, but if we look back, we can see that we have moved. We have gone from one point to another. It might be a point of commitment to greater commitment. It might be a point of one place of consecration to another place of consecration. It might be we've decided I have something that God's placed in my heart that I want to invest my calling, my talents, my gifts into the kingdom of God. But when we look back, we've moved. 
And I'm hoping that you didn't feel like he had to drag you kicking and screaming. But that we had to be willing. We had to be willing to go. The challenge comes from the word of God, but it comes with the whosoever will. And much of the focus of our theme last year was about what Jesus was doing within us. About how we should go. About how we should grow. About how we should change. About how we should not remain the same. And I think that's okay to a point. God wants to work in us. Amen. He wants to change us. He wants to transform us. And we've often heard it said that revival begins within the church. Too often we have this mystical idea about revival of how suddenly people will flood through the door that just came from nowhere. But revival begins when something happens within the family of God that then affects what's going on outside of the walls of the church, outside of our church life. Revival in a church begins with us. And so as we are beginning 2022, we want to continue to go. We want to continue to become what Jesus wants us to be. But we also want to add to that idea, the idea of taking someone with us on that journey. And so our theme for this year, if I could have that next slide, please, Sophia, is go and make disciples. It's not just about me anymore. It's not just about you anymore. It's about who we're impacting. It's about who we're touching, who we're trying to make a difference in the lives of. Amen. I want God to change me. I want him to change you. Not because I'm saying you need to change, but we all do. We all need to go. There needs to be action. There needs to be life within us. But this is, the, not, you won't find anywhere in the scripture the Lord said, let's all be lone rangers. Sister Mandy's testimony is confirmation of the word of the Lord this morning. And with this, this in mind, this theme, we've refreshed our vision statement for our church into four points. If I could have that next slide. We want to disciple. We want to lead souls into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to be a part of people becoming dedicated, encouraging people to take personal responsibility to invest in the kingdom of God. We want to develop. We want people to be equipped so they can serve in the body of Christ. And we want to demonstrate. The church can never be historical only. Acts 2.42 says, and they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. That's what we want to do. We want to continue. We want to demonstrate and strengthen an apostolic culture. If it happened in the lives of the disciples, we want to see the same fruit in our lives. That doesn't mean we want to go to prison necessarily, but we want to see God's power. We want to see people saved. We want to see people that will stand for the truth of God's word that will not compromise. That there is still only one God. That his name is Jesus. That you must be born again of the water and the spirit. The moment we compromise, we lose the ability to demonstrate. This statement is in line with the focus in the church this year on the word of God. But it's also in line with the vision of our national church. And I think that's important. It's important for us to recognize that we're a part of something bigger. A national church's vision falls into three categories. One is church growth, reaching souls. The other is the development of leaders to help to serve those souls. And the last one is to strengthen and maintain an apostolic culture. This morning, as part of our theme, I want us to particularly consider the first point of these four. And that is to make 
disciples. There is no greater experience in this life than to be born again. It does not matter what family you're born into, what nation you're born into, how wonderful your natural surroundings may be, how wealthy you may be, how prominent, all of those things that people value so highly. There is no greater experience than to be born again of water and spirit. I would rather live in abject poverty and be born again than to have everything this world has to offer and not know Jesus Christ. Because down here the scripture tells us all those treasures will fade, they will rust, they will corrupt. But we want to lay up treasures in heaven. There is no greater experience to realize, to realize that you have had your sins washed away. In Jesus' name. To realize that he loves you enough that he paid the price for you. To grasp and to remember what it was like when he filled you with his spirit for the first time cannot be compared to anything this world has to offer. Some of us don't necessarily remember our baptism because we might have been a little bit young, but I'm pretty sure that all of us remember when he filled us with his spirit. All of us remember that service, that prayer meeting, that wherever it was, Sister Natalie got filled in her car on the side of the road. Wherever it was that God filled you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we remember because there is no experience that compares with having God place some of himself within you. That's why the cross happened, that he could fill you with the Holy Ghost. Some of us were just kids when we got the Holy Ghost, and if you were filled as a child, you are abundantly blessed to have that experience so early in your life. You ask adults that didn't get it till later on, they would have loved to have it when they were children. Some of us were just kids. Some of our young ones were filled upstairs in the, in the children's ministry rooms praying for each other to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Some of us were filled in this baptistry as we were baptized in Jesus' name, come up out of the water and pray through and speak in other tongues, dripping wet with tap water on the outside and living water on the inside. Amen. I've known people and been with people that could not stop speaking in tongues long after the service had closed. Go out for fellowship and you've got some crazy person in the back of your car speaking in other tongues all the way to the restaurant. And you, you try to sort of half carry them in and people look at them and it's like, it's okay. They're fine. They're just having a time with Jesus. Amen. The question, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed is still relevant today? Still relevant today. There is nothing, and I hope this stirs you this morning, there is nothing like being born again of water and spirit. There is no experience. And if it happened to you for a long time ago, I hope you're not taking it for granted. You know, we can get so familiar, we come into the presence of the Lord, and this becomes our normal. And I like it being my normal, but I don't want it to be my complacent. Because out there, there's a world that's desperate and thirsty for what we feel on an almost daily basis. But the closest thing, the closest thing that you can experience to being filled with the Holy Ghost for the, by yourself for the first time is to be with someone else when they experience the same thing. Especially if the Lord has used you to bring them to Him, to disciple them. If you've had a part to play 
in that person having their own personal Pentecost. That is the next closest thing to receiving the Holy Ghost for yourself. If you're a parent, when your children receive the Holy Ghost, it's extra special. Amen. Because they're not just your kids, they're His kids. Hallelujah. There is nothing that compares to that. You see, the gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. That's what it means. It's not complicated. And what do we do when we receive good news? We want to share it. We want to share it. When that little baby is born, and we've got one got fresh grandparents down the back this morning, all of a sudden there's photos on mobile phones. There's pictures going up. I'm not 100% sure, but I reckon Sister Manny's got more photos of the baby than anything else on her mobile phone. If I'm wrong, that's okay. But suddenly there's pictures on Facebook. We're calling friends and family. Why? Because it's good news. It's good news. We ask ourselves, who haven't I told yet that I can tell? When our kids were born, when Matthew was born in 1997, it's pre-mobile phones. I know I'm old. So I've still got this funny old thing that some of you don't know. It's called a camera. Took a whole roll full of films of this newborn. So about 36 pictures of exactly the same thing. Went to the shop, got the photos developed, Express paid the extra to get it done really quickly. Express posting it internationally to my sister in California. I don't remember what that cost. That was insane. Sending photos to my mom in Queensland, my in-laws in Victoria. Why? Because it's good news. And you want to share the good news. We want others to share our joy when we have good news. Is there any better news than the gospel? Is there anything better than the news of what Jesus has done for you and what he's done for everybody? Is there better news to share than that? I know for the new grandparents it's probably neck and neck, but for most of us there's no better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Making disciples is about sharing our testimony. It's just a fancy way of saying, telling people what God has done for us. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It also includes a genuine love for souls and a willingness to demonstrate that love. When somebody has made a decision to believe in the Word of God and to begin that journey, if you're going to be disciple them you walk with them you model what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ we taught a series last year in about july august i think it was about what it means to be a disciple if it's on the podcast if you need to listen to that again paul you see we've got to change our understanding a little bit the apostle paul had absolutely no problem with telling people to follow him did it multiple times in the new testament we think of that we think lord don't follow me it's that old teacher that said, don't follow me, I'm lost too, you know. We, we get funny about thinking that people should follow us. But Paul was very emphatic that it was only as he followed Christ. In fact, he wrote to the Corinthians and he made it very clear. He said, this is not about me. It's not about Peter. It's not about Apollos. We didn't die for you. We weren't buried for you. He said, it's about Jesus. But he knew that if he gave his all to follow Jesus and somebody followed him, they'd get to the same place. That's when somebody's made that decision. But when somebody doesn't know the Lord yet, they've never been born again, the testimony of your words and your actions can reach for them. 
God-given genuine care for souls is a powerful witness. The Bible lets us know that you are an epistle. That means you are a letter. That means that people read you. The gospel, the message of hope of the word of God is what they need. But this is a little bit sobering this morning. That message comes wrapped and packaged in you. You're the packaging. You're the packaging. I want you to think about your favorite food this morning. Brother Jonathan, what's your favorite food? I probably knew. I've seen him eat chicken. If I cooked chicken for you in the way that you like it cooked more than any other way, and I did a good job of cooking that chicken, and you were hungry, and you were sitting there at our kitchen table, and just before I came to you, I reached into the bin and pulled out a soggy paper plate from last night's barbecue and put your chicken on that plate. Your attitude to whether... I'm not going to ask me if you'd eat that because I'm scared of the answer. But your attitude toward the chicken changes. There's nothing wrong with the chicken. But if it's on that half-soggy, gravy-stained, moldy paper plate from yesterday's barbecue that I've just pulled out of the bin, the whole picture changes. The gospel comes wrapped and packaged in us. I'm not suggesting any of you are soggy barbecue plates. What I am suggesting is your words and your actions contribute to whether or not you're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Some people think that reaching for a soul is just telling them that they need to be saved or they're going to hell. When they don't respond positively, they say, well, I told them. God forgive us if we have that attitude. This is the good news. It's the gospel. It's not junk mail. You don't just shove it in someone's letterbox. It's got to be packaged properly. It's got to be handled with love and care and delivered sincerely. There's enough fake out there. Amen. John 13 and 35, the Lord said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now, I've often read that verse and heard it taught and preached and often... The context is the one to another is our brothers and sisters in the church. And I believe that's true. If we can't love our brothers and sisters, then forget loving the world. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It does apply to the kingdom of God, and it needs to be the testimony. One of the things that always makes me emotional about this congregation is the diversity of cultures and and, and ethnicities that we have in here that we don't even think about when we come through that door. I said to the leaders, the only time I think about the cultural diversities here is when I'm thinking about how awesome it is. That's the only time I think about it. Other than that, we're just church. We're just family. Amen. But we're not to be insulated. We're not to lock the doors and go into a siege mentality until Jesus comes. Luke chapter 10, very well-known passage of Scripture. Luke 10 and 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, tempted him, Always a bad idea. Saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? What do you think the word says? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, You've answered right. This do, and you shall live. But he 
willing to justify himself. God help us not to stand in the presence of Jesus and try to justify ourselves. <laughs> He's going to show you where we come up short. Said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, departed leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way and he saw him and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise the Levite when he was at that place came and looked on him passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine, soothing and anesthetic and he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, we would say a motel, took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, to the innkeeper, and said unto him, take care of him. Whatever thou spendest more, if it costs you more than what I'm giving you now, when I come, I'll pay the rest. Which now, Jesus said, of these three, do you think was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. The question was, Who is my neighbor? The man who fell amongst thieves needed compassion, he needed time, he needed effort, and he needed resources to help him. Sisters Danker, if I could have you to the piano, please. Jesus wasn't teaching that we need to seek out the highest maintenance people in the planet. That we need to go out of our way to look for, oh, this person's going to take all my time, all my patience and all my money. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying that you bypass the regular folks and look for the hard cases. What he was saying was that whoever we come across, as we walk this road, whoever's in our path, whoever's in our life, that's our neighbour. It may be the work colleague that seems to have everything together. That's your neighbor. It may be extended family members that drive you nuts every Christmas. That's your neighbor. It may be what we think of as your neighbor, the person over the fence. Whoever it is that we come... You see, the Samaritan didn't go down that road looking for somebody. He was, he was going about his business. In fact, the fact that he dropped the wounded man off and said, I've got to leave and I'll come back, he had things to do. He wasn't on annual leave. He wasn't just having a break and going on a holiday. He was busy about his life. But as he went on his way, he saw somebody. And he was willing to stop. That's how you make a disciple. You demonstrate care. You demonstrate love. It takes time to make a disciple. If you read the Gospels particularly, you'll see Jesus' followers referred to as his disciples again and again and again and again. It's over and over. Because in that culture, that word was commonplace. It, was not a, it wasn't a strange word like it is in our culture, but a disciple was so often somebody who committed themselves to a rabbi or a teacher and followed them wherever they went, learning from them, gleaning wisdom and understanding. And they were always known as the disciples of that person. They knew that they were Jesus' disciples because every time they saw Jesus, they saw them. They weren't all wearing matching T-shirts that said, Disciple of Jesus Christ. 
But wherever Jesus went, the twelve went. Wherever he stopped, they stopped. And he spoke to them and he ministered to them. And you know, we, we have such a wacky understanding of the word of God sometimes. These twelve fishermen and tax collectors and other assorted regular people didn't have a clue what was going on most of the time. They're walking with this man. He's healing people and raising dead people and saying things they can't understand. We look back and go, wow, they were the 12 disciples. In the beginning, they were the 12 confused followers of Jesus Christ. That's who they were. (laughs) We think they're all Bible school graduates. They were ordinary people that chose to follow him. And that's what we are today. But it didn't stop with them. Because when the Lord died, was buried, rose again, and then a short while later ascended into heaven, that wasn't the end of the process. The disciples gained disciples. And their disciples gained disciples. Because they're all trying to follow the same person. And so one of the best things that you can do if you want to win people is be a disciple of Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Live it. Demonstrate it care for people reach out to people you do not know your impact you do not know but every time we have somebody cross our path it's an opportunity to make a disciple of Jesus Christ you know you never know and you know I'm not wanting to lift up either myself or my wife but our next door neighbor and I may have shared this with some of us I'm not sure recently my next door neighbor the father of the family just died suddenly not the old man, only 58 years of age. Left behind a wife and two young adult daughters. You know, we've lived next to this family for about 16, 17 years now. And very early in the piece, we wanted to try and get the girls to come to Sunday school. We wanted to try and reach our neighbors. They made us very aware that thanks, but no thanks. And so we were always friendly. They were really good neighbors to us. They helped us. We helped them. You know, about the only way that they acknowledged that that I was a minister was when they needed documents witnessed. Bring over their mortgage documents and I'd I'd witness their paperwork, which I was happy to do. But when my neighbor died suddenly, his wife messaged my wife at what time? About 2.30 in the morning. Now, because of my wife's husband, my wife sleeps with earplugs. So she didn't hear the message. Until when she got up in the morning and saw the message on her phone. And my next door neighbor said to my wife, she said, I knew as soon as you saw that message, you would be here. Seven o'clock in the morning, as soon as my wife got up, saw the message, she was next door. Before I was even awake, before I was even awake, she was trying to care for her next door neighbor. Will we reach them? I don't know. But we're going to demonstrate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because we have to care. If you want to reach the lost, you must care. If you don't care, please don't talk to the lost. If you're going to reach people, you've got to care for people. Hallelujah. Stand with me if you would this morning. We need, I love this church, please don't misunderstand me. This is a fantastic church. But we need a fresh urgency to reach souls in this hour. You may not have a clue how to go about that. Be somebody's friend. Pray for somebody. Choose somebody. So God, this year, 
I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to go out of my way to try to demonstrate the gospel. An opportunity to tell them, hallelujah, whether they've never known the Lord, whether they've walked away from God and they're finding it hard to get back, you can reach that soul. I said it before and I'll say it again. Somebody reached you. Somebody shared their testimony with you. Somebody took the faith that you had, like Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos, and showed you the way more perfectly. Why can't you be that somebody? Hallelujah. We're going to worship the Lord. I'm not going to open the altar this morning. But right where we stand, I want you to build an altar. Right where we stand, I want us to offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. Say, God, I want to be your disciple. Everywhere you go, I want to be there. When people see you, I want them to see me. Lord, I want to be that epistle. I want to be that letter that when people read it, they see Jesus. Hallelujah.